And it says that I'm live. All right. People are starting to filter in. We're live on LinkedIn, YouTube, and Twitter today. And today I've got a great, great, great guest. Palmer Higgins is joining me from Chenmark. I can see I've already got a couple dozen people that, uh, that are in here viewing. So I'm going to play the intro and then we're going to get, uh, get Palmer in here and we're going to start off right away. I'm David C. Barnett, and you're tuned in to Small Business and Dealmaking, the podcast, YouTube channel, and blog, where I talk about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses while controlling risk. So if you're looking to take control of your future through buying a business one day, or if you already own a business and you're looking to grow or exit, you've come to the right place. I talk about interesting things, I talk to interesting people, and I answer your questions every week right here. So be sure to hit like, and be sure to hit subscribe, and let's get to it. Hey, good morning, Palmer. How you doing? Good morning. Doing well, thanks. No, it's great to have you here. Um, today, we're going to be talking about buying businesses and managing them with someone else who's going to be going to be running the show on behalf of the owner. And I wanted to invite you on to talk about this. About, you know, first of all, you were a guest and you came in and spoke with my Business Buyer Adventure Group Coaching Program. We we talked about a little bit of a different topical matter in that call. We talked mostly about the idea of offering equity and ownership to managers and other people and 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 the example that uh, that Chenmark uses. Today, I wanted to address something that is the topic. It's one of the biggest areas of questions that I frequently get through people leaving comments on my YouTube channel or people sending me emails or on Twitter. And it's this idea of passive small business ownership and buying a business and letting somebody else run it for you. And I thought this would be a great conversation for us because you and your partners own several operating businesses and you've got other people managing many of them. And I want to, I want to get into that. Firstly, to start off though, I want to get, if you could just give us a little bit of a background about Chenmark for people who haven't heard of you before, um, just so that we get up to speed and, and we have an understanding of, of sort of the timeline and just the kind of position that you guys are at today. Sure. Yeah. So happy to be on um, Chenmark. Uh, I founded Chenmark with my brother and his wife, my sister-in-law, coming up on eight years ago now. Uh, and the goal, we all came from a more traditional finance background. And the goal was to put that skill set to use in a way that would be a little bit more impactful, uh, more meaningful, and, and in a way that we could bet on ourselves, frankly. And uh, we thought uh, the world of small business was was an interesting place to to spend our careers. And the thesis from that early, early idea eight years ago has really stayed the same. It was to acquire long tenured, small operating businesses. So businesses that had been around for a long time, typically in mature industries that we felt confident that the core product or service they offered was going to be around for decades to come. Mm -hmm. uh, and we would acquire them typically from retiring owners um, and we would operate them indefinitely. And then our focus would be how do we support the operations of these companies? for not just a successful next year or next quarter, but for the next five, 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, and that's been the thread that's been consistent. Um, we now flash forward eight years into the future. We own nine, what we would call platform businesses. So businesses that have their own CEOs, their own brands, they're, they're managed independently uh, across a number of different industries throughout the US and Canada. So we do go across border. We are, I know you're Canadian, but we're, we're US based. Um, but the the sort of initial theme has been consistent. We're, we're looking to acquire businesses and own them indefinitely uh, and, and managing them, uh, especially when we're acquiring them typically from retiring owners, where there's there's generally not someone in the company who's in a position to step up into the CEO role. Supplying our own management has been one of those things that we've need to, needed to solve in order to scale. And so can you tell us what kind of business that first one was that you bought initially? Sure. First business was a commercially focused landscape maintenance and snow abatement company in Portland, Maine. And and that acquisition is what facilitated or, or prompted you and your partners to move to Portland. Yeah. Yeah. We were in uh, Greenwich, Connecticut at the time. Uh, none of us really liked living in Greenwich, Connecticut, to be totally honest with you. Uh, and so we used we always had an agreement that the first the first company we bought, we were going to move to that area just to make sure that things went well. Um, and we did that thinking, you know, we'll be here for maybe a year or two, and then we can figure out where we want to live. And we just loved Portland. So we've stayed. 
And so that first business, were you kind of knee deep in the management? Did you run that yourself in the traditional sort of buy a business and become the owner manager kind of way? No, we actually didn't. Uh, we partnered with the sellers who wanted to stay on for a period of time. Okay. And so we were more in a oversight role um, and, and sort of facilitator support role. Um, they ended up moving out, moving on from the business that they sold to us earlier than expected. Um, and I think in hindsight, we probably should have run the business and gotten that experience a little bit earlier. And tipping my hand a little bit, David, I know you know this, but uh, now two of the three partners of Chenmark, myself and my sister-in-law both run companies ourselves uh, or have, have had experience doing that. Uh, and I think that experience has been really valuable for us, not just to get that experience, but I think it's made us better, uh, better at Chenmark and better able to source new deals better able to evaluate opportunities, better able to coach CEOs who are going in to run some of these companies for us. Mm -hmm. uh, so I do think that experience has been really valuable. So how long after the first acquisition did the second one happen? Um, very quickly, within six to eight months. I'd have okay. to double check, but pretty quickly. And so were the, were the sellers of the first business still on board when that second acquisition happened? Yes. Okay. And, and for the second acquisition, did, did one of you become the operator there too? We did not. The second okay. one was totally different. That was in British Columbia, Canada. Mm -hmm. That was a situation fairly rare, uh, but there was a very capable, very strong number two in that company owner really wanted to see him get a shot at taking a step up into the CEO role. And so it was, he was right into the deal at the very early stages and we got to know him and, and agreed that he was a, he was a really a really quality CEO in the making. And so we acquired the business and promoted him to the CEO role. And so how long into your journey was it before one of you had to step into that job? Uh, I was the first one. I stepped in to run, um, what was it, our fourth acquisition? Um, and that was back in 2019. Okay. And what kind of business was that? It's a residentially focused lawn care company. So doing things like lawn fertilization, we'd control seeding work, ticking mosquito abatement, things like that. Okay. Um, I, I got to tell you, th this place is filling up quickly. There's a lot of people online. We got a lot of people saying hello. Kevin down in Lakeland, Florida says good morning. We've also got uh, Subrata says good morning from Columbus, Ohio. Dan is over in Montreal saying hello. Uh, Intentional Money Minnesota is saying good morning as well. And then uh, we've also got uh, R. Ames is saying uh, again here, good morning from Ohio. And Kindred Supports, another one. Good morning. So there's a lot of people in here already today. Um, so, you know, you stepped into that role. You started managing that business. That, as you just mentioned, was a whole new set of skills and experiences that you got to go through yourself. When, when you started to go through that, did you then start to have a lot of aha moments about things that maybe you should have been doing differently since the start of Chenmark? Yeah, I think we we learned the importance. We kind of already knew it, but I, I think it highlighted the importance of the CEO role in a small business. Um, a small business is, in, in my opinion, the, kind of a unique thing. One person or a small group of people, typically that would be like the senior leadership team, can have a really outsized impact on a company. Uh, sort of akin, uh, I sort of related to, you know, you bring a star player on a basketball team that can make a basketball team really, really good, as opposed to you bring a star player into a football team football team's probably still going to stink. Um, and so a small business is more like that basketball team. Uh, the, the trick is, uh, so that CEO and that senior leadership team are in a position where they can have a really big impact. The, the catch is that there's no guarantee that impact is positive. So mm -hmm. if you get that, if you get that CEO and that senior leadership team wrong, they can do a lot of damage in a small business in a relatively short period of time because small businesses are small and they're by nature a little bit more susceptible to shocks. Um, so it just under underscored the importance of, of getting the leadership right. Well, one of the things <clears throat> that I believe that that I've seen and have a lot of experience with is I, is I really think that if you're going to be an owner and not running the day to day, you have to have a de good degree of familiarity with the business so that you know what to keep track of. You know what metrics you want to be observing um, so you can kind of keep an eye on, on your operator and, and, and what they're doing. Did your experience as an operator change the way you measured the other operators that you already had? Um, yes and no. I think we we come 
from a, a background where we're all highly analytical and when you work on wall street and finance it's sort of beaten into you mm -hmm. um i think we 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 brought more process around that so there was more there, there was a more defined cadence of reporting and exactly what was getting reported on in a much more structured way so as we scaled those things weren't ad hoc you know problems weren't getting elevated on an ad hoc basis they were getting elevated on a more structured basis and so you had to find checkpoints to check in to see if things were on track or off track and if they were off track what was the plan to get them back on track so i, I think what we learned is just realizing that if we wanted to keep scaling we needed to create more process around it as opposed to just relying on our analytical our pure analytical abilities to sort of see what we saw when we dove into the numbers um but certainly I totally agree that you need to understand what are the key drivers of a business um, and for different businesses and different industries, those might be slightly different, but understanding the three to five key things that are going to drive a business that can be sort of your early warning detection system to see if things are going awry. Yeah. Yeah. How long did you run that business before you were able to step back out of it? <laughs> I technically am still running it. Uh, and this will yeah. be my, this will be my last year. So December 31st, I will be handing it off to one of our CEOs in training. Okay. Now you mentioned that you have several companies right now and you just said CEOs in training. So can you give us a little bit of insight into the sort of HR planning that goes on at Chenmark? I mean, obviously you've got um, to have this, this field of potential candidates that you're working on and developing all the time uh, because of new acquisitions, but also in the, the case of something happening to someone, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we, I think I'll take a step back and say the, the reason we developed the, the CEO development program, we call it our, our GVP program, generalist vice president program, uh, was a realization that small business CEOs are critically important, mm -hmm. making sure we're aligned with those people on culture, values, expectations, roles, and responsibilities is also critically important. And it's very hard to do that. Uh, and to hire that person directly off the street, for lack of a better phrase, while you're evaluating a deal and while you're doing diligence, because deals are very idiosyncratic, diligence can take a long time and then it moves very quickly. And so pacing that deal can be tough. It, a deal can always fall apart at the 11th hour. So trying to match up a deal that you're trying to close, but you're also trying to evaluate if you want to close with a CEO candidate that you've never really worked with before. Mm -hmm. we've just found to be very difficult. Uh, and so we've, we've pivoted to creating those people, uh, or developing those people internally. And so our view is there's a lot of people out there who have similar interest to us, have an interest in being in the world of small business, have an interest in having impact, uh, have an interest in having real tangible responsibility, having a range of responsibilities that they'll get in a, in a CEO position of a small business. Uh, and so we bring them into Chenmark, we put them through a bit of a program to get them exposure to our world to give us eyes on them to give them eyes on us and to get them some operating company experience in a non-ceo role so that when the time comes they are more prepared and we are more prepared to put them in that position one of um i i think this i think this is great one of the things that uh, that i've talked about a lot with entrepreneurs um and and is very clear to me is that entrepreneurs sometimes um, and, and I'm not a psychologist, but I think the term is projection where you assume other people have the same sort of motivations that you have. Mm. Uh, I've, I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs will, um, expect that they can find easily other people that will have the same kind of motivations and be opening to be invested and, and, and have that drive and desire to see the business succeed. Uh, and then are quite surprised to find out that it's very difficult to find those people. And, and, and I like to remind people that the vast majority of humans out there are just happy selling their hours for, for dollars. Like they just, they want a job and then they want to go pursue other interests. What can you tell us a little bit about how difficult it is to find people to put into that pipeline for your, for your general vice president program? Yeah. So I think we're in a fortunate position where in the world of, of small business acquisitions, which is still relatively small in the, in the grand scheme of things, Chenmark has, has gotten a name for mm. itself in that world, uh, especially tangential to the search fund community, that if people are inherently interested in that space, they, they will generally find Chenmark. Mm -hmm. um, and so we get a lot of, we're, we're fortunate we get a lot of people who are interested. And I think our biggest, um, our biggest focus is not 
having difficulty finding people. It's making sure we find the right people that fit what we're looking for and, and our model. And our model is one model. There's plenty of other ways to approach small businesses. We don't pretend to say that our model is the only model or it's the best. It, it just works for us and it's how we've designed it and trying to stay true to that is important. Um, so I don't know if I'd say it's necessarily difficult. We definitely, you definitely need to have a process around it. We can, we can, we commit significant time and, and money to finding these people and to developing them. Um, and we're fairly regimented about the process we put them through be, again, because that CEO position is, is so important, but at the end of the day, it's a necessary thing for us to do because in order for us to scale, uh, you know, there's really three pillars to Chenmark acquiring its next business. We need to find it. Okay. So there's a whole search function. We need to have the money to do it. So our current operating companies need to, put, need to perform well enough for us to have the capital to acquire business. And then we need to find the leader. And of those three pillars, the reality is deals, you know, you can have a process, deals will come and go, they're idiosyncratic, but you can find them. Capital, you can find money, you can raise money, you can make money. The leadership piece is really the most critical piece um, and is really the linchpin for us. And so, you know, it's interesting because I had a, a guest on a live stream a couple of weeks ago who was talking about public relations and she was talking about identifying who the audiences are you're trying to communicate with and what your you know, sort of reason for communicating with them. And, you know, I know that that Chenmark is very public. You and your partners do interviews a lot. You appear at speaking events, appear on podcasts, things like this interview today. So, so really part of this is getting Chenmark out there, both from the recruiting side and also for the awareness side, maybe of someone who wants to retire by selling their business to Chenmark. Yeah. It's, it's funny. You mentioned that, that we're public, we probably get the opposite piece of feedback more than, than yours, that we're not as public as we probably should be. Uh, especially because me, James and Trish personally aren't super public on social media, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, where I don't even have Twitter. I can't remember the last time I posted on LinkedIn. So we do do interviews like this. We do appear in panels and podcasts. Uh, we, uh, we do have a, a blog that we, uh, that we write weekly, which I think is probably the biggest source of traction that we get. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you're interested, chenmark.com weekly thoughts, check it out. Shameless plug. Um, but, uh, I think we could, I think we could do more quite frankly, to get the name out. Uh, we, we struggle on how to do that in an authentic way and to not be overly self-promotional, to not fall into the trap of being a little bit hyperbolic about the claims we're making. Uh, and I think as a, as people, the three of us are naturally a little bit more quiet and reserved. Um, and I think that is part of our culture, but, uh, there is certainly a value to to being a little bit more public facing so you can attract people to the cause and you can get sellers of businesses to know who you are because the, the dream in acquiring or the dream for search is to not have to contact the sellers for the seller to contact you. Mm -hmm. um, that's a decades long endeavor that we're in the very early stages of trying to accomplish. Uh, but again, trying to trying to do so in an authentic way. We uh, we have a bunch more people who who showed up here. We've got uh, someone saying good morning, good afternoon from London. It's a little bit later over there, and even it's even later over in Kuwait. Uh, oh. Internet says good uh, good morning from Kuwait. Uh, we have someone who's up really early says good morning from Edmonton. Hi, how are you today? And and here's a question that kind of leads into the next one that I had on my list. BA four eight two one says, what's your criteria when looking to acquire a business? Uh, which leads right into one of my questions about size. Mm -hmm. And so maybe you can talk about that sort of what, what things are you looking for when you guys look to add to your portfolio? Sure. So if we're talking about a platform company, and when I say that term, we're talking about a company where we are going to supply uh, that company with a CEO and it's going to have, we're going to retain that brand and it's going to be run independently. Uh, for that, our, our sweet spot is in that one to $4 million of earnings, whether you want to call it EBITDA or mm -hmm. SDE or net income. I'm, they're not all the same accounting terms. I'm fully aware of that, but they're, they're also not hard and fast numbers, but we're looking for enough scale on the small end uh, to, to make it sort of a, a big enough business for our involvement. Um, and also typically we find that below that million dollar threshold, there tends to be less institutionalization of the business and therefore more key man risk. Um, 
above the $4 million, we have nothing against bigger businesses. Just typically, it tends to be that those businesses have other opportunities with more traditional private equity that to work with us, they have to sort of be willing to leave some value on the table because the big, the big thing that differentiates us from certainly any other financial buyer is that when we acquire business, we're not expecting to sell it. And when you don't expect to sell it, you can't forecast a terminal value. And if you mm. don't do that uh, and you're focused on IRR, it, it, you, it really limits what you can pay. And so we don't focus on IRR. We don't focus on terminal values. We focus on free cash flow generation and free cash flow yield. And when you do that, that, that creates a fairly tight governor on what you can pay for a business because it forces you to pay for a business based on its fundamental cash flow generation capabilities uh, and not what you think you can flip it for in five years. Uh, and when, it get, when you get bigger, it just becomes harder and harder to compete with private equity who does do that. So I, I think I think your answer to this question is great because there's a lot of different things we can unpack here. And the very first thing I'd like to unpack is the definition of small business, because you just said that you are looking for small businesses with you know cash flow in excess of a million dollars, and in in the vernacular that I use, I would call that a lower mid market business. And I think this is important for the viewers because a lot of different people are out there in the world talking about business and they're using a term like small business. And a lot of the times the people who are speaking have a different idea of what they're talking about. They have a different scale, a different size. And so uh, this is important because a lot of the stuff that you are talking about with what I call lower mid or market businesses, um, that the things just don't apply in the same way to what I would call a main street business, which would be like under half a million of EBITDA business. And so a lot of the times on my channel, I've got people who are asking questions and they are talking about these main street businesses. They're talking about doing kind of the stuff that you do with these lower middle market businesses. And, and I think that's where the difficulty happens for some people is they, they try to apply thinking methods, et cetera, that come from one tier or echelon of the business world, and they try to apply them into others, and they have a harder time making them fit. I would imagine that the people you hire to be the CEOs of your operating companies are well-paid individuals, like six-figure salaries, bonus plans, all that kind of thing. And for a lot of Main Street businesses, it would be difficult to hire that caliber of person to come in and run you know, a shop with a million in sales and you know, a quarter million in earnings. Yeah, definitely. Um, we do acquire businesses of that scale. Typically, we're acquiring them in a, in a tuck-in fashion. So that'd be a company we've already acquired is acquiring a, a competitor or a, a tangential business to theirs. Um, and so we have done plenty of those. We, we have nine operating companies, but we've done something like 30 acquisitions. So that gives you a sense that almost every single business we've acquired has gone on to acquire at least one other company themselves of varying scales. Uh, and, a, and, and a tuck in is basically a small company. You just bring it in, tell everyone, you know, we're now part of the XYZ team. And, and really that company that you tucked in ceases to exist. The customers and employees just get absorbed by that platform business. Yeah. So uh, on, uh, the ceases to exist sounds very, sounds very nefarious. So I don't want to, I don't want to make it seem like that, but certainly from a branding perspective, yeah, you're acquiring the brand and you're, and you're lump and you're looping the brand into sort of the, the parent brand and yeah. yes, um, bringing the employees over, certainly the customers there in and of itself there, there could be a range. So we've done some acquisitions that the integration can be so tight that you're essentially just buying goodwill. You're buying customers, you're buying customer lists or contracts and, and not too much else. There's also a possibility that our companies have done where they're using it as a way to grow geographically. That would be more so if they're a service-based mm -hmm. business and geographically you know, distributed service-based business, and they're using an acquisition as a way to get a toehold into a new geographic market, in which case that might look and feel like a slightly bigger deal because you're acquiring maybe some land or a building or you're acquiring... You might even want to operate out of that brand for a period of time because your brand might not be as well known in that new geography. So there's there's, there's some there's some differences depending on how big that tuck-in acquisition is and and what the strategic objectives are of that acquisition. Um, but yes, for the most part, you're you're taking over that brand um, and, and looping it into the parent company. So of your businesses, I know you have some in Canada. You mentioned one in British Columbia. Uh, do you have other ones in Canada as well? Yep. We have two, two in both in British Columbia. 
Okay. So British Columbia is about as far away as you can get in Canada from Portland, Maine. So would you have, would your planning and contingencies around, you know, human resource redundancy be different for those Canadian operations versus the ones that are closer to you in New England? Um, I think from a fundamental basis, it's the same. It's, it's trying to have a bench of people that we are developing to be small business CEOs. And in our experience, we're typically not, we have yet to invest in a business that's so technical that requires very specific industry right. experience. More so, we're investing in businesses um, even across industries and across geographies where the challenges and the burdens on the CEO are largely the same or very similar, how they manifest might be different. So the example would be, you know, I run a, I run a lawn care business in new England. It's got five branches spread out over 300 square miles. So I, I rarely see the whole company only, I only see the whole company twice a year. Um, and we have tens of, you know, tens, multiple tens of thousands of customers. So unique business there. Uh, conversely, one of our companies in Western Canada is a frozen frozen food manufacturing company. You know, you think very different, but when we're talking to each other, the same themes that we're, we're, we're battling with in our companies are, are similar. So mm -hmm. how do we attract talent? How do we develop talent? What are you doing about inflation? Material costs are going through the roof. How are you handling that? How are you handling discussions with customers about that? On what cadence are you trying to pass through price increases to, to, to meet that challenge? You know, what do you think about strategic growth? You know, how are you planning for it? How do you think about capital allocation? These things are all very similar, despite how they manifest in each business might be slightly different, but the, the themes are all the same. I, I would imagine that within Chenmark, the CEOs effectively have kind of like a mastermind group with each other to, to help and support each other along the way, as well as you guys being involved in that as well. Yep, informally and formally. So we actually all meet every single month um, and do have a bit of a mastermind. But uh, the goal of that is to make sure that the CEOs all know each other and can reach out to each other whenever uh, to help. So like that's been uh, over the years that I think that is a network that is going to be increasingly valuable to all involved. Hmm. Have you ever made an attempt at some kind of, of vertical integration within your acquisitions, trying to get above or below the value chain with one of the businesses you already have? Uh, not formally. It's, it's an area that we might, as we get into a business and that gives us exposure to other businesses up or down the value chain, that might compel us to sort of search in those areas for potential new acquisitions. But it's not a stated objective that we acquire business and now we're going to be very acquisitive up and down the value chain. Um, we'll see if it happens, but um, we believe fairly strongly in decentralization. So, you know, if the focus is to acquire one company to then get extremely vertically integrated and centralized, that could work, but it's not necessarily a, a, an investment thesis of ours. Okay. You, you had made a few comments earlier in the last answer that you gave about uh, about how you look for these businesses, you talked about terminal value. And just for anyone who's listening who's not familiar, you're talking about a discounted cash flow valuation method where you look at the next say, five years and you estimate what you might sell the business for and it kind of you calculate a value. It's very common in the in the world of private equity investing and and, and things of that nature. And that is your background, correct? Not private equity specifically, but yes, fundamental equity research was uh, was my first job out of school. Okay. And so I would imagine that when you're out looking to acquire some of these companies, some of your biggest competition would probably be private equity groups if you end up in a competitive situation, correct? In some cases, um, I think it gets back to your comment about, you know, you call our world lower middle market. We don't call it lower middle market because we, we very rarely run into private equity players. Okay. I think it varies by industry. Yeah. So in our size range, typically you're not seeing even lower middle market private equity players be active. Maybe in that three to $4 million EBITDA range, they're going to start to get active. And certainly at the $2 million EBITDA range in certain industries, they'll, they'll definitely be active. So uh, every, everyone's looking at HVAC companies, for example. So I don't think you can look at an HVAC company of any kind of scale, probably even $1.5 million EBITDA without seeing private equity involved or a private equity backed strategic buyer involved. Mm. But I, there's still plenty of industries and lots of hundreds of thousands of smaller businesses uh, that where private equity isn't really isn't really super active. Uh, we do run in from, into them from time to time. And I'd say the other cohort that we run into 
uh, on a somewhat regular basis would be the search fund community. Okay. All right. I've got a, a couple of other great uh, questions here. First of all, we've got uh, Anthony down in uh, Houston, Texas says, good morning. Hey, Anthony, how are you today? Um, Ironwood Workman says, great point about the definition of small business. Thank you. I, I thought I, I knew immediately when, uh, when Palmer mentioned that we had to bring that up. But I have a specific question here uh, about your acquisitions. Someone asked, do you typically use SBA funding? It's a great question. Yeah, easy answer. Uh, we don't. We've looked into it, looked into the 7A program, um, didn't use it in our beginning deals. Now we're at a scale where it wouldn't make sense to use it. Um, and typically, uh, the SBA program takes a little bit longer to, to underwrite deals. And so we like to move a little bit faster. And we've developed relationships with financing partners where where we get financing on terms that, that work for us that don't force us to go through a, an SBA program. How can you give us an idea of how the conversation with sellers changes once sellers realize how many times you've done this before and that you're a successful operator? Is it as far as pricing and terms and things that they're willing to consider from you? Um, I don't really think so. I, we were, to be totally honest with you, even before we bought our first company, we were we were quite surprised about how willing sellers were uh, to talking to us, and we thought we would have to overcome a lot of sort of skepticism of, yeah, I get it, you have a financial background, but you've never really done this before, and you know where are you going to get the money? And and we were actually kind of surprised that we didn't experience that. I don't know totally why. The only thing I can think of is um, two things. One, I think we approached these sellers in a very authentic way, telling them our story and mm -hmm. why we were doing what we were doing. And I think because I think the other piece was because we were a family ourselves and and small businesses, whatever your definition is, mm -hmm. uh, small businesses tend to be family businesses, either explicitly or implicitly. Uh, I can't tell you how many times we've met with sellers and then their spouse is in the room, but they're not formally working in the company uh, or you meet with the whole family and you know, kids, too, um, or you meet them at their house and you break bread together. So I think being a family ourselves and talking about sort of why we're doing this as a family, talking to a seller who has had, you know, a similar experience with them and their family because their, their business is sort of inextricably tied to their, their family dynamics, I think has helped us sort of get those conversations off the ground. Certainly now, you know, we have the ability to, to, to reference our track record of, of being acquisitive and acquiring deals, I think just to sort of get the benefit of the doubt. But from my perspective, when you're talking to a seller, I don't think they care, nor really should they, that we bought nine companies or 30 companies or zero or one company. What they care about, what they care about overwhelmingly is that, are we authentic in our desires for their business? How are we gonna treat them in the sale process, in the transition process? And then importantly, how are we gonna treat their employees and their brand, their baby? They've built this company, they're, yeah. they're frequently owner operator founders and if they aren't, they took it over from a, a parent themselves. Um, and so they care deeply about what's going to happen to my business and what's going to happen to my employees and what's going to happen to, you know, my community. Uh, and that's what they care about most. It, it, I, I think this is great. I, I, I often have conversations with people about how buyers need to make sure they can humanize themselves in the eyes of the seller that without a relationship existing, it's too easy for a seller just to 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 not have that empathetic connection with the buyer and to sort of treat it more as a transactional kind of thing. Um, I'll often get people who will say to me, you know, how do I, you know, get a seller to agree to, you know, some seller financing, for example, in a deal. And, and I'll tell them that, you know, no one wants to lend money to a stranger. So, so you're going to have to spend some time and get to know that person before they're ever going to come to an agreement like that, where, you know, on a deal where they're going to, trust that you're going to be a successful operator and take part of the payments over time. And so I, I think what you've just shared really highlights that it, it has to do with the way you approach them, the way you introduce yourself um, so that they can understand your point of view and that, and that you're a good guy. Yeah. And that, there's no substitute for time, but ways that we certainly over time, what we've been able to point to and what does help shorten that amount of time needed um, is we can put them in touch with previous sellers that we've worked with and say, hey, mm -hmm. don't don't take our word for it. Talk to these people and we won't be on the call. You can ask them whatever they want. They're going to give you honest answers. You know, it's not we don't always agree all the time. Right. There's always some moment in the deal where you're concerned that the deal might fall apart um, and that 
this is not the, this is not the shameless plug it's going to sound like but that is a, a primary reason why we we have written this blog every week for close to eight years is instead of putting our bios on our website and putting our backgrounds which i think will read in a way that people will assume things that probably aren't fully accurate about us mm -hmm. you know if you're coming from wall street finance in new york you're probably going to assume a lot of things that we don't think are fully portray us as people um probably probably negative things uh but the blog is a way for people to get a window into how we think and who we are in a very authentic way and so if sellers want to take the time to read the hundreds of blog posts that we've put out there i think they'll very quickly get a sense of who we are how we think how we think about small business how we manage how we manage companies how we manage people uh and hopefully that gives them sort of a, a closer tie to really understanding who we are and, and not being strangers because it is written by us and it does take a immense amount of time to do that every week, but we've kept that up for exactly that purpose. Yeah. I, I think that's great. Have, have any of your acquisitions not turned out the way you have had planned or thought they would? Of course. I don't think you can be, I don't think you can be in this world without, uh, without having some setbacks. I mean, that's the nature of, I think all business, and like I said a, a little while ago, small business, because they're small, they're just a little bit more susceptible to shocks. So whether it's an exogenous shock like COVID-19, you know, mm -hmm. we had, we bought a, a boat tour business in February of 2020. So couldn't have been worse timing. Yeah. COVID-19 wasn't even on our radar. And, you know, March 13th was, was D-Day up here in Maine. It was, it, the business was based in Maine. And Maine basically shut down. And so that 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 business got shut down temporarily. And then when it got um, released to open, it, it was only allowed to open at 30% uh, capacity. Uh, and so we bought a business with an expectation that it was going to be X. And essentially, it was one third of X. Um, and so that's that's a tough environment. But uh, luckily, the, the, the strength of Chenmark and the structure that we have is we're able to weather those storms because typically not every business in in your network is going through a you know 66 reduction in revenue uh and so we had the opposite experience too some of our businesses got the COVID boom and right. uh, on a, a chenmark level you know it looked actually fairly stable but underneath the water you had some businesses that were in really tough times and you had some businesses that were in well equally tough times but for a better reason right they were having they were struggling to keep up with demand um and I think that's just the benefit of our of our structure of being able to sort of help pick companies up when they've faltered and help support companies when they're when they're growing aggressively. And so you get this built-in uh, portfolio diversification within the holding company because you've got exposed to all these different uh, kinds of businesses. Um, you just mentioned how in, in if one company is struggling, another company may be booming, and there's an opportunity to to you know, help them out. You know, you can move money back and forth if you needed to. Uh, are you at the size yet where you think you can take on, for example, a distress scenario or look for a deal where there's a business that needs to be turned around? Is that something that, that you've thought of? Yeah, it's something we talk about regularly. Um, it's not a formal, uh, it, it's not a formal focus of ours in the search process of looking actively looking for distressed companies. I think where we're most open to it is going to be in the tuck-in scenario where we mm -hmm. already know an industry deeply. And so we can more easily understand what is making this company distressed. I mm -hmm. think it would be, uh, I think we would suffer from, from some extreme hubris if we were in an industry we've never been invested in before and in diligence, you know, you, you do as much as you can in diligence, but the reality is you don't really know what you bought until the day after closing and you start actually figuring out what you bought. So, that's probably not where I would focus on a distress scenario, but if it was in a, an industry that we already had a lot of familiarity with and experience in, I think that would raise the, our confidence that we knew what was wrong and what we needed to do to fix it and how confident we were that we could fix it and see material improvement. Okay. Well, what about on the other side of things? You, know, you mentioned that you make these acquisitions with the understanding that you're going to hold them forever. Um, have you ever discussed or thought about the possibility that you might ever have to divest or or close a business at some point? Did you ever set yourself some some guideposts or indicators that would cause you to check in and, and really examine something like that? 
Yeah, I mean, we tell we're open with sellers and we're open with teams that our intention is never to sell a business, but that that's not a promise that we will never, ever sell a business. I don't think anyone can make that promise. You don't know what the future holds. Um, we've never sold a, a business outright. We've sold divisions of businesses, um, branches of businesses, never a full one. Um, but the analysis, you, know, you, you have to, if you're a capital allocator, we're in charge of furthering Chenmark as a whole. And if that means Chenmark is bettered by divesting of something, either because it's underperforming or it's not performing as we expected, or there's greater opportunity elsewhere and, and focus is what's really demanded. And so sort of shrinking the footprint of a business or the service offerings of a business so they can focus on what's truly impactful. I think those are all decisions that CEOs have to make and that, that, that Chenmark partners um, have to make as well. So it's not, I wouldn't say that it's a Chenmark partner decision. It's a collaborative decision with CEOs of, of analyzing what's going on in the business, what are the opportunity sets, what's working, what's not, and, and how can we position this company to be successful for the next decade? And, and if that means divesting of some sort, okay, we can have that conversation. But that's very different than the private equity model where in mm. in diligence, you are already planning your exit and you are, and the framework for how to make decisions is is looking through the lens of, well, how is this going to impact my sale in three, five, seven years. And, and the reason why a lot of those private equity groups have to have that model is they're using funds that have been uh, contributed by investors. And those people have some kind of timeline for the wind up and liquidation of that fund. Eventually part of the story they were told about how they would eventually get their money back and, and the returns that would be earned. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So in, like I said before, they're playing, they're focused on IRRs every, every, Private equity company is focused on IRRs. Um, you don't have to be super financially literate to know that IRRs are very, very sensitive to the time that money is outlaid and the terminal value. Uh, and we are on purpose, very, very long-term oriented and not focused on terminal value. So that just means the IRR is, is not a good metric for us to optimize. You um, you gave the example of someone divesting a branch or a division. Can, can you tell us a story of that? Sure. Um, yeah. Company specific if you can't, but uh, it'd be no problem at all. Company that what the background or, or reasoning was there. Company that uh, that I am running now stepped in in 2019. Uh, sort of got my feet underneath me at the time. The company had five different business lines: so lawn fertilization, uh, lawn seeding and seeding services, tick and mosquito services, vegetation services, and then what they called tree and shrub, which was really plant healthcare. So okay. fertilization and disease management for trees and shrubs. Um, for, uh, I could talk about this at, at depth, but high level for the people who probably don't want to know the, the detail, uh, the, the plant healthcare division required a, a totally different skill set in terms of uh, agronomy knowledge and, and plant knowledge, um, a totally different equipment setup than all the other types of businesses or, or, or sorry, all the other business lines. And it was our smallest division. Um, and therefore it was the most spread out over our service territory. And so when you really broke it out, this was something that hadn't been done yet. But if you were to strip it out in, in the P&L and actually look at the profitability of that service line, it was our least profitable service line by quite a bit. Um, and the the people who who were really capable in that division, the people that had a lot of that knowledge um, were, were getting to a point where they couldn't do the field work themselves. And so it just had this recipe of we're not super great at it. We're not. It's our smallest division. Um, we don't see a path uh, to it being a very core competency of ours. Um, so we either have to do one of two things. We need to invest radically into this to make it something where we can be really good at it, or we need to divest and we can free up that bandwidth, that brain power, that CapEx, you know, and that focus and focus on what we can really be great at. And the, I mean, obviously the, the, you know where we ended up. The decision for us was pretty obvious. Let, let's shed this division and let's focus on these four more core service lines for us. And I think ultimately it was the right call. And did you find someone to buy that off of you? Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. And and so I think this is a great story. And so here's my follow-up question to it. When you were buying that business, was the data transparent enough for you to make that analysis beforehand? Or was it only after you implemented better controls and more detailed bookkeeping that you were able to learn that about the, that part of the business? Yeah, it was only after. Yeah. Um, and this is, this, this goes back to what I said earlier about, you don't really know what you bought until you've bought it. 
Um, we, we talked about that division with the seller and his take at the time was it's, it's necessary. Customers want it. You know, we're already on their property for their turf and for ticket mosquito control. So we might as well do tree and shrub. But what is left out of that analysis is that may be true, but the person who's doing the tree and shrub work and the vehicle, the equipment that needs to come with that person is not the same yeah. as the other stuff. So you're not picking up the efficiency you think. Um, yes, sure. You have a relationship with customers that you might be able to cross sell this service, but what's the value of cross selling if you're not really excellent at that service line anyways? Um, and, and frankly, we only did half of what customers really wanted on the tree and shrub side, because yes, we could fertilize and we could do insect management and disease prevention on their trees and shrubs. But when they came around to saying, Hey, you know, this tree's dead, you've told me, so can you take it out or can you prune this tree or can you prune that shrub? We said, that's not what we do. We only do the, the healthcare part. They're and, looking for a full arborist kind yeah, of. Yeah. And so then you're like, service. well, okay, so we're, we're only really doing half of the job. Right. And so yeah. are we really as full service as we're telling ourselves? Uh, and, and that stuff you needed to be in the business to ask the team internally, those questions to really tease out that, you know what, no, we're, we're really not doing a full service job here and we're not even doing the part of it that we were doing all that well. So let's focus on what we do do well and, and we can really grow from a position of strength. I, I think I think this is a great example because I, I've, I've seen way too many times where I'll look at an internally generated P&L for a, for a small business and they might have five or six categories of revenue, different lines of service that they're doing. Then there's like one cost of goods sold line and you have no way of you, you have no way of knowing if the targeted gross margins in any one of those lines is being achieved because they haven't gone through and broken out their costs and their direct labor to match those those income lines. And it's only when and a lot of the small business owners that I get these from, they don't know the utility. They don't understand the value in that kind of information. They kind of see the financials as a necessary evil to file taxes and things like this. But it 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 really highlights once you have that information. I mean, I've seen people chase and try to grow divisions that were losing money. Every new sale they made that lost the money and they didn't even know. Yeah. So this is one of the, the core things that I think are essential, is essential in small business is a really deep understanding and appreciation for unit economics. Um, and that's a terminology that probably not a lot of small business, uh, business owners are familiar with, but I think the good ones know it intuitively that, you know, I sell this for X, it costs me Y on a unit by unit basis. And what's the overhead burden associated with this product or this service versus something else so that they're not selling a dollar for 95 cents unknowingly. And I, and I, I think people naturally instinctively get if you're selling a product, you got to sell it for more than you bought it for. Mm -hmm. But it's that allocation of overhead that that people would miss. You know, understanding what portion of all these sort of like overhead general expenses really need to be allocated to a, a given line. So I'll disagree with you a little bit. And so okay. I've seen plenty of manufacturing companies that certainly the easy direct input costs. So you know, if if you're if you're making a, a loaf of bread, it's the wheat and it's the sugar and it's the yeast and stuff like that. Uh, but go a step further. And are you, are you focused on like it's throughput through the plant and are you properly allocating labor, right? If, if some, if some widget can move through a plant at hundred widgets per hour and another can move through the plant at 200 widgets per hour, those, those have very different cost structures associated with them. Um, so certainly from a, absolute direct input cost. Yes. I think that's, that's definitely, I, I don't see that very, that mistake being happening very often, but if you go one level, level deeper, I, I think I, I, I don't think I know I've seen, I've seen people optimizing widget a instead of widget B, but when you really crunch the numbers, like widget B is actually what's, what's making you the money. Hmm. Yeah. Great point. We've got a couple other comments here. We've got uh, a good morning from Melbourne, Australia. It must be morning tomorrow there, I think. Um, Zambla is asking, is this recorded? This is a live stream, so it's going to live forever on my YouTube channel. And for uh, for anyone else who listens to my podcast stream, as soon as we're done, I download the audio and put it on there. So however uh, you like to consume it, it's, it's going to be on there and available to you. And then um, Iron Workman says, tree and shrub work is much more complex than most people think. Three people in my family are arborists. I know from experience. And uh, I've seen I've seen those types of people working 
in my neighborhood on people's properties and and also to uh you know clear power right aways and things and uh, i've seen them spend a whole day working on one tree you know doing it the right way and so yeah it's 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 requires a lot of knowledge skills experience uh, and the proper equipment too totally agree yeah um Palmer, this has been this has been fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to spend with me and the audience here today. Um, what is the name of that blog again, and where can people find it? It's called Weekly Thoughts. If you go to chenmark.com, c h e n m a r k dot com, you'll find it. It's called Weekly Thoughts. Awesome. And as soon as we're done, I'm going to update the show notes for this uh, live stream. I'm going to put that URL in there. And uh, and and thank you. And best of luck. You uh, you had mentioned before we started uh, live that you're going to be doing a reshuffling here and you're going to be changing your your day to day role. Uh, we want to tell us a little bit about that on your way out here. Sure. So I've been running this uh, lawn care company for this. So this is my fourth season. Um, and at the end of this year, I'll be um, I'll be transitioning out and elevating um, one of these individuals who's been in our CEO development program into the CEO role of the company I currently run. I'm going to be stepping in to run a different one of our companies. Um, that that CEO position is getting vacated because he is actually moving in to run uh, our newest acquisition, which is scheduled to close in about a month. Awesome. Well, good luck with that. And I hope everything goes smoothly. Awesome. Thanks a lot. All right. Have a great day. Take care. So how can you learn more about buying, selling, financing, and managing small and medium-sized businesses? Easy. Head over to my blog site, davidcbarnett.com, where you can learn more about me and how I work with my clients. You can learn more about my books and the online courses that I've prepared for you. You can find out about how to subscribe to my email list, the YouTube playlists, etc. There's literally hundreds of hours of content there, all for free, and I'd love for you to be my guest. Special thanks go out to Jeff Alpaw Customs for being my tailor. Men all around the world can look dangerous, just like me, with the help of Jeff Alpaw Customs. JeffAlpod.com. Use the code DCB10 to save. They handle multiple currencies and ship anywhere you happen to be. This episode of Small Business and Deal Making is brought to you by SMBPodcastNetwork.com. The network is a collection of podcasts and shows from around the internet which focus on bringing you interviews with amazing guests who share actionable advice, ideas, and information for small and medium-sized business owners and entrepreneurs. Visit www.smbpodcastnetwork.com to find more great shows and easily subscribe to be notified of new episodes. It's a great way to discover quality content. And if you've discovered us today via the network, then I hope you're enjoying the show and will consider subscribing directly so you never miss any one of our great episodes.